You are listening to the Less Drama, More Mama podcast, episode 160. Why is my child in charge with Claire Lerner? This is Less Drama, More Mama, the podcast for moms who want to feel calm, in control, and confident about how to handle anything life throws their way. You're ready to go from feeling frazzled and disrespected to feeling calm and connected. This is the podcast for you. I'm your host, Pam Howard. Hey, Mama. Welcome to the show. I have an amazing interview for you today, and I realize that I say that every time, but this one is packed with stories and examples and wisdom from my guest, Claire Lerner. Claire is a child development specialist and practicing clinician with more than 30 years of experience working with kids and families in a range of capacities. Trained as a clinical social worker and psychotherapist, she began her career as a child and family therapist. For nearly 20 years, she served as the director of parenting resources at zero to three and currently spends the majority of her time serving as a consultant to families with kids ages six and under. She's the author of hundreds of parenting resources, including blogs, podcasts, videos, and her new book that's being released this week called Why Is My Child in Charge? A Roadmap to End Power Struggles, Increase Cooperation, and Find Joy in Parenting Young Children. I read the book prior to our interview, and it aligns perfectly with what I talk about here on the podcast. So if you like the podcast, you're going to love this book, you're going to love the episode, And you have a chance to win a free copy of the book by going to my Instagram page and following the directions for how to enter the giveaway. We're giving away two copies to U.S. residents, so go check that out. This is a long interview, but it's worth it, so let's get started. All right, so welcome, Claire, to the podcast. I'm so happy you're here. Why don't you start by introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about why you wanted to write this book? Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Um, So I'm a clinical social worker by training and have been in the field, the early childhood field for about 35 years and have done many, many things in this space. So I've been a play and family therapist. Um, I worked at a very large national nonprofit, Zero to Three, for about 22 years where I did a lot of training and writing around early childhood development, brain development for professionals, for parents. Um, And then in in the last 10 years or so, I have decided to completely devote myself to being in the trenches with families, which is really where my passion lies. And so I spend my days in the weeds helping parents puzzle through the challenges they're facing and do what I think of as the detective work to figure out what's really the root cause of um, the challenge. Because as you know, Pam, you know, you can line 10 kids up with, you know, tantruming or sleep challenges or potty refusal. And there could be 10 very different reasons for why that child is having a hard time Mm -hmm. um, with that skill um, or managing, you know, that emotion. And so I see families uh, to guide them through a process of figuring this out and coming up with strategies for supporting their children. And then I also do a lot of um, preschool consultation. So I'm in many area preschools where I am helping teachers and staff 
figure out why children are having um, challenges in that setting and then collaborating with families and teachers in order to best support that child. Wow. Love it. And when you say you're in the trenches with families, are you still doing, I know in the book, you talk about doing home visits. Are you still doing that? So yes. And actually that, that is, was actually the genesis of the book writing. So when I decided to devote myself a hundred percent to direct service work, I started to notice that I would meet in consultation with parents. We would start to unpack the challenge and we would come up collaboratively with really good strategies, right? And a, a lot of these are not the most novel strategies, right? Many of us are writing about, you know, not yelling at kids, not using bribery, the, you know, the risks of using rewards, why not to make threats, why loving limits are important. And we would rest all of that. But in the moment when the parent went home and was triggered by the child's provocation or the power struggle or the child coming in and out of the bed 50 times at night and you know their blankets weren't right and their stuffed animals weren't facing the right way and they had to pee for the 20th time they went into reaction and all of the work we had done was very hard to access in the moment and so i decided to start doing home visits because mm-hmm. i felt like i could be more effective if i could watch these transactions unfold and really tune into what's going on with this child. What's the triggers for the parent and what did they really need in order to be able to manage their own emotions, to respond in the way their children needed. And that became a central part of my practice because it was so incredibly powerful Mm. to support the parent and the child in the moment and to actually see the dynamics unfold, no matter how good you are in your office, it's never the same as seeing and feeling, you know, in person. And so as I started to do more and more home visits and really unpack with parents, what was getting triggered for them and what were the obstacles to them doing what they knew to do, right. To set loving limits Mm-hmm. Essentially, um, I identified these eight very specific mindsets, which I think of as faulty mindsets, that was the starting point. It was almost like the lens through which parents were interpreting and reacting to these situations that was leading them down a path that led to more frustration and more reactivity and more dysregulation on everyone's part and made it less likely that there was going to be some positive problem solving. And so while I never intended to write a book because there are so many amazing books out there in this space, I felt like I had something new and additive that could get parents unstuck because almost every parent who comes to see me, like I said before, knows that yelling and bribing and threats are not effective. But this mindset problem is what I felt really was the key to helping parents be able to access and be the parents they really wanted to be. 
Yes, absolutely. And my listeners know I'm all about mindset. So I love, love, love this book. And even though it's geared towards younger kids, I think the strategies and the and the concepts in here really apply to just any kids. Even I'm thinking I could even use some of these with adults, you know, <laughs> like they're, they're really good. So I want to touch on a couple of the mindsets that you um, talk about. There's eight of them in the book. And I want to just touch on a couple of them. So let's talk about this mindset number two in the book, which is my child tries to get his way, uh, or excuse me, when my child tries to get his way, he's being manipulative. I hear that all the time from parents that I work with, that they they have a belief that when their kid is misbehaving, that they're doing it on purpose and they're they're just trying to manipulate. So tell us more about that. So... Thinking again about the power of the mindset is that it puts you in a frame of mind that then directly affects your behavior. So if you see your child's behavior as manipulative, you are much more likely to respond in a harsh and punitive way, which almost always just amplifies the power struggle. It gets your kids' haunches up and it sets you down a path of a lot of frustration. So As I watched these scenarios unfold between parents, it was so clear when you could be outside the system like we get to be and we're not in the middle of this very triggering event that the child is just doing what's in the DNA of a child is they're they're trying to push their agenda. They're trying to get what they want when they want it. And there's actually nothing inherently wrong with that. That's just at a cellular level, what they do. And it's the parent's job to teach the child what are acceptable ways of getting their needs met and what aren't. Mm. And, and so once I was able to help parents see that Not only did they not have like a quote unquote bad fascist dictator kid, by the way, that's something I can't tell you how many parents come in saying like, we have a three-year-old fascist dictator living in my home. And my, my most recent favorite is a dad who said like, my child literally is extorting me. Like I run a company and I manage 500 employees very effectively, but I literally have a three-year-old who's extorting me. He will only come to the dinner table if he can watch Paw Patrol on his iPad. Mm -hmm. So once I help parents do what I call a mind shift and see that there's nothing wrong with their child, they're very strategic they have figured out effective ways, right, to either yank their parents' chain or wear them down to get what they want. That's just being strategic. And once parents have this mind shift, they are much better prepared to respond in a way that is much more loving while setting the clear limit. Much better able to say, I know, bud, you love Paw Patrol. I get it. And you're really disappointed that we don't allow iPads at the table, but that's our rule and you're going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, it changes the dynamic astronomically just by putting the parent in a different frame of mind. Yes. And I love that reframe from manipulative to strategic. I think it's great. And I remember when I was working um, my first job out of social work school and I was working with teenagers and there was a boy who was like constantly pushing the limits. He was never doing what he, we know what he was supposed to. And I said to my supervisor, why is he doing this? And she just said, 
because he can. And I was like, oh, like that, that has stuck with me for so many years. And it was like, that's his way of getting what he wants. That's all. Right. And it's really, you know, I think one of the things that's really confusing to parents is that young kids and especially, well, actually, like you say, all kids don't approach the world in the logical way that we do. So I have so many times parents, like if he would just put his shoes and socks on, we would have time for another book. Everything would be right with the world. And instead it's a miserable knockdown drag attention. Like, why would he do that? And the reason is because kids are driven for control Mm -hmm. and that often supersedes everything. So if you, if you're coming at it from your logical perspective, often there's going to be a real mismatch between what you're thinking and what your child's thinking. So when you're able to step back and see it from your child's perspective, you're much better able to respond in a way that meets him where he's at and not sort of go down this path of frustration. Yeah. It's so hard to do in the moment though, isn't it? For parents to try to put themselves in their kids' shoes instead of thinking that they need to prove themselves right and they have to you know, get their kid to behave a certain way. So I guess that goes into the next mindset, right? Which is um, something I talk about all the time, but that I can control and change my kids' feelings and behavior. Right. So this is, I would say when I'm asked, like, what is the most important, which is really hard to do because you can also see Pam, how they're all kind of interconnected, right? They're not really like siloed, but, but often again, when I'm stepping back and really trying to figure out what is the dynamic here, that's just not working. And often it's because all of the parents' energy is going towards trying to get their child to change their mind or change their behavior to be like, oh, you know, it really would be a good idea to put the iPad away and do more edifying things for my brain and my body. Or yeah, I should lie in bed and go to sleep because otherwise I'm going to be tired tomorrow for camp. Like what parents do is they bribe, they threaten, they offer a reward, they try and use logic. They use all of these tactics But if you think about it, they're all dependent on the child eventually saying, okay, Mm -hmm. like I'll accept that reward or, oh, I don't like that threat. So maybe I will stay in bed. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, the outcome is still in your child's hands. So what happens when this happens? And this is a very recent example. And I have so many of them, but so a mom was working, she was working at home And the dad was watching the four-year-old and they had said, you can't interfere with mommy's Zoom call. You need to stay downstairs. Mm -hmm. So what does she do? She starts to like edge herself up the steps backwards, like staring down her dad. And he's going, Miranda, remember, if you go up and bother mommy, then you're not going to get any TV later today. And she has that mischievous grin that like Mm -hmm. really, you know, but just drive parents completely insane. And she's creeping up the steps and the dad is pouring it on with more threats. And she eventually looks at him and says, I don't care about TV later today. And she runs right up and barges into the mom's room. Now the mom is going ballistic and it's just an epic meltdown on Mm -hmm. everybody's part. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So 
in that you can see how using threats bribe rewards, what happens when your child's like, don't care about it. So the reframe is what you do control is yourself and the situation. So the redo for this family was Miranda. I know it's really, really hard to have mommy at home and not be able to see her. Totally get it. That's really tough. But our rule is when mommy's on a call, we can't interrupt her. So you have two great choices. You can stay down here and we can play in this playroom. And if you have a hard time doing that, then we'll put a gate up. Mr. Gate will help you follow the rule. Mm -hmm. And it, and it's, totally fine. If you don't like it, I'm not, we're not asking you to like the rule. We completely understand why you wouldn't like this rule, but that's a mommy daddy job. And right now mommy needs to do her job. And this is our job is to play down here and let mommy do her work. So once you stop trying to change, get your child to change her mind or her behavior and focus on what can I do to implement this limit First of all, it's much more effective. And the most important thing is that it enables you to stay calm and loving. Mm. That is what we are all angling for, right? Is not being that parent at the end of the day who just feels like all they've done is yell and screamed and bribed and threatened their kids to get them to quote unquote cooperate. Right. If you start to see it as that's my job to tell my child what her two great choices are, with one choice is she does the right thing. She agrees to stay downstairs and play with her dad and respect the rule. But if she has a hard time doing that, option two is something the parent can control to ensure the limit is implemented because it's when the parent starts to feel out of control, like their child is driving the car and they have lost their ability to um, scaffold the family life in the way that they know is important for everybody is when they start to lose it. And that is what's detrimental to kids. Limits are not detrimental to kids. So I know I'm, I'm, I'm going on and on, but the thing that reminds me to, to note, because it's another one of these things that I think uh, like a mindset that really gets parent parents caught is that it's not love or limits. Like often when I'm talking to parents, I realize at a base level, they either feel like they're loving their kids, they're playing, they're engaging, they're eating, they're laughing, or they're setting a limit right. and that they're like two completely different things when limits are just a part of being a loving parent. And there is a way to do it if you focus on controlling yourself as opposed to trying to control your child. Yes. I actually did a podcast episode called Consequences with Love. So maybe I'll link to that in, I, yeah. in the show notes. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So you, you mentioned two things. One um, is this strategy that you call two great choices, which I love. Can you give us some more examples of those? Because I know for my clients, like I'll give them a, a strategy like that, but then they're like in the moment they have so much difficulty coming up with those two choices, right? Yeah. They like they know the the choice that they want, but then that second one is always a little bit um, harder to come up with yeah. in the in the moment. So here's what I came up with to address that exact conundrum, which is and and that's where that's that's where the rubber meets the road. It's it's the trigger, mm -hmm. it, and it happens so quickly. 
and we get flooded right with emotion and reactivity that's very hard to you know hard to think clearly mm-hmm. just like we know kids in those moments can't think clearly same for us so right. so what i suggest parents do is this if it's not life or death right like your kid isn't running into the middle of the road um you do what i call taking a mommy or daddy moment and this is this what was it, brilliant too. I loved this too. <laughs> this is so. This is what it looks like, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, you know, Jason who is refusing to give back the iPad when his iPad time is over, and you're getting ready to threaten and bribe and do all of that, but you pause. And what you do is what you know we call sports casting. So the first thing you do is you recognize like my blood is starting to boil. I have an ungrateful child who I've already given an extra hour to, and now he still won't give back the iPad. So you pause and you say, hmm, let's see. So I've asked Jason. And you're saying to, this out loud in yeah, front say, of Jason. Yes, yeah. Okay. So this is very important. Yeah. Because it's very effective if you can do it like this. You you literally, t- you're talking to yourself, but in front of them. So you're mm-hmm. saying, okay, let me see. Hmm. So I gave Jason a direction, which was to turn the iPad off because the show was over. And he's having a hard time following that direction. So hmm, I'm going to take a daddy moment to figure out what are Jason's two great choices? How can we solve this problem? Well, Jason's a human being, so I can't like make him give it back, right? That's only something Jason can decide. Now, by the way, 50% of kids at this point just hand the, hand the iPad back. <laughs> they're like so freaked out about what their parent is doing and that they're not getting sort of revved up and reactive. But if you but play it's it also out, important, like it's also important not to be saying this in a condescending kind of sarcastic tone, right? Like you really have to just kind of play like you're talking to yourself, like you're just kind of trying to problem solve. Exactly. And that is key what you just said, because it can't come out being sort of snarly or obnoxious mm-hmm. because especially the highly sensitive kids will be on to you in a second and it will completely backfire, but you're literally doing at least like, hmm. and I can't make him do it. So I guess his two great choices are he could give it back on his own. That'd be one great option. Or I'll just need to take it. And, you know, that might feel really uncomfortable because like I might have to take it out of his hands and I don't think Jason's going to like that and I'm not going to like it, but it's time for the iPad to go away. That's our rule and I'm going to be a helper. And that, so you, you basically, what you're doing is several very important things. First of all, you're throwing a monkey wrench into your potential reactivity, which is almost always the downfall. Mm-hmm. Um, second, it buys, you know, it buys you time to think and you are being an amazingly powerful model of self-regulation for your child. And then you have time to come up with the two great choices, right? What, what would be the choice that would be the child could take for the outcome that you want? and what's the end game basically. So it's like the same thing with the car seat, right? It's like, oh, I can't make Amelia get in the car seat. Only she can choose that. So I guess her two great choices are she could get in on her own and be totally in charge. By the way, I'm very, very careful with the words I use because these kids want to be in charge. So you say, well, Mm -hmm. let's see, Amelia could be in charge and she could get in herself. That's one great option. 
The other great option is I'll help her get in. And that may feel uncomfortable. She may be kicking and screaming, but it's time to go to school. And that's a have to. And that's my job as, as, as Amelia's mom is to get her to school on time. And then if she obfuscates and runs away or does whatever she's going to do to not take advantage of option one, you calmly and lovingly scoop her up. You ignore all of the antics and provocation, the kicking and the screaming, and you're a terrible mommy and I hate you and I'm going to be mean to everybody at school today because you're doing this to me. All the things she knows is going to trigger her mom. And all you're doing is talking about the flowers, what you're going to do later when she gets home from school. You strap her in, you get in, you put on some music and you act like nothing happened. There's no need to be mad or annoyed um, and let this fester. It's literally we had a task. It was really hard for you in the moment. I was a helper and now we're moving on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. Let's talk about, since we're kind of talking about the kicking and screaming thing, <laughs> um, you talk about aggression, physical ad- aggression. And um, tell us like this other mindset that I don't know if this relates necessarily to the aggression, but the mindset about being mean to your kids when you set limits. Uh, I've heard that a lot from clients as well, that they feel like if they put limits on their kids that they're, you know, like you said, I hate you, you're the mean mommy. And so to try to avoid that, they don't set the limits or enforce them. Right. So I think there are sort of two things at play. Um, One is that for some group of parents, they feel, again, at a very visceral level, that when their child has a meltdown, that that state is is inherently detrimental to them. The kicking, the screaming, the flailing, I hate you, I don't want you to be my mommy anymore. And who could blame them? I mean, it's so triggering and it's not, you know, when we got into parenting, none of us like expected that this was like a normal thing that would happen, right? That like you would have a sociopath as a child. And, and that's how it feels to some of these parents in these moments, because they say some pretty outrageous things and they make some pretty outrageous threats. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's because of course you and I know, and many people out there listening know that in that moment, the child's downstairs brain has just completely taken over. They, they're disappointed. They're frustrated. They can't have something they want, and they don't have the skill in that moment to manage that upset. But it's working through that upset and coming out on the other side of it that builds what everybody's talking about, right? Which is grit, resilience, flexibility, the ability to learn how to manage when you can't get what you want when you want it, right? One of our most important jobs as parents. So the problem is if your mindset is that this is detrimental to my child, this meltdown, it's going to be very, very hard to set a limit because you're going to feel like you're doing something literally mean and harmful to your child. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, so that is a major stumbling block. You know, like where we started this conversation, Pam, was what's the delta between what parents know and what they do? What is the obstacle? Like what is getting in the way? And for parents, this is often what is getting in the way is that at a cellular level, they feel their child's distress is detrimental. So once parents understand that there's nothing inherently detrimental, 
and that it's all the way you deal with it. So you could either say, you are so spoiled, it's never enough, go to your room, which I think we would both agree would be harsh and detrimental. Or you could say, I know, sweetie, it's really, really hard. You expect when we go to Target to get something, grandma gets you something every single time you go, and it's really hard. But that's mommy's rule today. Today Mm -hmm. is not a day, and I totally get. And if you need to be upset about it, totally fair, totally fine. And you take your deep breaths, and you keep saying to yourself, this is loving, This is helping my child learn how to manage when she can't get what she wants and she needs me to be her rock. She doesn't need me to be angry. She doesn't need me to be frustrated or shame her. She just needs to know that I'm there with her in her feelings, but I'm going to hold the limit because it's part of what I'm doing as a loving parent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit about, um, you mentioned the lower brain. And you also talk about the red zone. So can you talk about what is the red zone and how do we help our kids when they're in the red zone? How do we help them get out of it? So let me give the proper attribution to the red zone concept. So I do a lot of work with occupational therapists in my practice, because over the years I began to see, and maybe you did too, Pam, that You know, people come to us as clinical social workers to work on social emotional development, right, with their kids and behavioral issues. Um, And we're usually looking for the source, the child's social and emotional development. But I start to see that I just had this sense that something else was at play that was making it really hard for these kids to manage their emotions and their bodies and who were getting punished a lot for their behavior. And at the root of it was a sensory challenge. So I, I know you probably don't want to go off on that whole tangent. That's a whole I know, other we could podcast. Do. Yeah, I know. Exactly. And it, uh, but I so important. It, I mention it because, and I do address this a little bit in the book, because if you miss that piece of the puzzle, if your child has an outsized reaction, let's say, to sounds or textures or touch or smells or feels uncomfortable with his body in space, like all of these sensory things are the lens through which the child processes their experiences in the world. So if you miss that as a piece of the puzzle, you're not going to be as effective in supporting the child in developing the self-regulation they need. So as I started to work with occupational therapists, they use this tool called the zones of regulation. And I'm, I'm not, that's complicated to explain, but the important thing is that there's different zones that kids function in. And the red zone is, is the zone where the child has just completely lost it. And um, the way I think of it is just they, they've lost control of their mind and their body, which is when they start to be physically aggressive, throw things, hit, spit, kick, scratch, and also say incredibly venomous and vitriolic things. And it's because their system has been triggered into stress mode and 
their downstairs brain has completely taken over and their what their upstairs brain, which of course we know is still in the earliest stages of development. So the modicum of self-control they might have is completely consumed and flooded with this emotion and they have no access to it. So that is why all of us experts are counseling parents when your child is in the red zone. The only thing you're moving towards then is calm. That is not the time to start problem solving, trying to talk your child out of their feelings, using logic, trying to divert them. In that moment, what's most important is to create calm, to let the storm pass so they can get back to what we call green zone, which is the zone where children, their minds are calm, their bodies are calm. And then you are able to problem solve. Yeah. So some of the some of the ways that parents try to get their kids to calm down, though, are not so helpful, right? So can you speak to that a little bit? What are some ways that we that we move towards that calm, or what are some ways that we avoid, you know, that that seem logical, that seem uh, like they would be helpful, but they really are right. counterproductive. So I'll tell you. Um, You know, I wish one day I could just put up video after video that families send me um, because of COVID and not being able to do home visits for so long. Parents started sending me video so I could really see in vivo what this looks like. And here's something I, a pattern I identified that was so critically important and such an important insight for families, which is that. When kids are in the red zone, what often is happening is it's so triggering to parents, this need to make it all better is so consuming that we get very activated and start to try and make it all better, right? Mm -hmm. So most recently, we had a three-year-old and the dad was taking the video while the mom was trying to get her daughter's blankets just right. Okay, this went on for like 15 minutes. It's not right. It's not folded right way. You know, the mom, mom, I couldn't believe the amount of patience. This mom did not lose it. She did not get frustrated. Isn't this this in the book? Yes, it's in the book. Yes. And she starts trying a million different things to get the blankets to be just right. But I'm watching and I can see that. This child is just completely, as we say in Yiddish, verklempt, like Mm -hmm. completely out of sorts, did not know her own mind. She was on such overdrive that nothing her mom did was going to, and not only, not only was nothing her mom did going to work, it was so clearly making it worse. But the mom, of course, could not see that. She's hoping against hope that at some point her daughter's going to say, that's perfect. Mm. Right. And the second her daughter kind of finally lied down, she moved and she's like, oh, they're all clumped up again. And I started to see this pattern, whether it was at bedtime or the child was really upset that they couldn't have another cookie and the parents on the floor going, oh, bud, you know, tell me what's upsetting you. And maybe you could have strawberries instead. 
The problem is, is that when they're in red zone, they're not able to take in any of that information. They're not able to calm themselves enough in that moment to make another decision. And so what they really need is just your calm presence to get them back to green in order to problem solve. So that's one big pitfall I see parents falling into. Now, I know a lot of your listeners are thinking, okay, that's fine for the cookie. Like mm-hmm. you say to, you say to him, I know, bud, it's really disappointing. And right now your whole mind and body needs to be out of control. And at some point they pull themselves together. And then you can say, would you like the strawberries or the blueberries? Or they don't have a snack at that point. They're not going to starve to death, but they've learned that they can manage not having the extra cookie. Because I think for these kids, what's happening in the moment, as irrational as it seems, is they at a visceral level don't feel like they can manage that upset. Right. Um, you know, having the fourth cookie, staying another half an hour at the park. It's the living through it that helps build the flexibility and the adaptability. But like with the blanket kid, do you know what the most loving thing was? And it was the absolute most counterintuitive thing for this mom was to say, sweetie, I know it's just so hard right now. You're really tired. And it just, it feels really hard to make the blankets right. We, I had her put on a timer at the end of every bedtime and say for five minutes and say, this is your five minutes to do everything you need to get yourself to sleep. And but once the timer goes off, I'm going to say my special mantra, give you my special kiss, and I'm going to go. And I totally trust that you'll figure it out. And that's what they did. And the first night she screamed and yelled and she was never going to go to sleep because her blankets were not right. But she eventually did fall asleep. And within three nights, she had completely mastered it. They did a practice round, which I, excuse me, which I loved. Um, This is where that idea came from, where we decided that they would say to her in a quiet moment, not in red zone. The next day they said to her, that was really tough. You did a great job of getting yourself to sleep. Let's do a practice round so that you know how to do your blankets just the way you like them. And during the day in a quiet moment, and the child thought it was great fun, they practiced Mm -hmm. what she do to get her blankets just right. So the book, of course, is filled with tons of those kinds of tools, um, tricks of the trade, but on like the overarching messages, you're not trying to get them to change their mind in red zone. You're doing that work when they're back in green zone. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And I, I want to say, so I love the way the book is set up where you do give tons of examples and stories. And, um, you know, you talk about like, here's the scenario, here's the mindset and the mind shift. And then here's the plan that we set up. And then what I love the most is that you give the outcome, right? A lot of the, a lot of parenting books, they say, well, here's the plan that you should do, but then like, that's it. So yours was like, here's the plan. And then here's what happened. And in every situation, the, the first time the parent does it, sometimes the second or even third time the parent does the plan, it doesn't quote unquote work, right? The kid still pushes back. They still have a tantrum. They still engage in whatever kind of 
you know, strategic shenanigans <laughs> that they want to, you know, get what they want. Um, and I think that just demonstrates like, don't go into this with the expectation that it's going to work overnight, that just because you have this great plan, it's not going to change things right away necessarily. Um, but how do you help parents to stick with it when they feel like they're doing everything and it's, and their kid isn't changing their behavior? Right. So I, I you know, obviously I, you know, I did that intentionally because I was looking at what was missing Mm -hmm. for parents in some of these other books is that they stayed very theoretical Mm -hmm. and did not get into the weeds and the messiness of what it really looks like. Um, And so I'm glad you, you know, you appreciated that, that aspect of it because I felt like that was sort of the greatest contribution was for parents to see how this process unfolds and not to get disheartened when, because if, if you're doing, if you're reading a book and it says, do these things and you do them and the kid is still doing what they do, then you're like, I'm a failure. I can't do this. This parenting book doesn't work. Exactly. So here's what I say to parents is that as we start to change the rules of engagement, because that's almost always what's happening, right? Um, You know, the, the kids coming in the room, they're bribing, they're yelling, they're screaming, the child won't stay. And the next thing you know, the child's saying, you're hurting me because the parent's trying to get them into bed. And the next thing you know, the kids in the parents bed all night because everything has fallen apart and they're moving backwards instead of forwards. Right. So what I say to parents is, when you start to set the loving limits, you're going to get more pushback because Mm -hmm. it's new to the child. It's not what they know. And it's not their fault. Like they expect if I come out of my room 50 times, my parents are going to get worn down and I'm going to get to sleep in their bed. And, um, my, my strategy is working, right. That goes in the win column because they're Mm -hmm. strategic, not manipulative. So now the parents see it as strategic. So they're already in a different mindset. They're able to set the limits and see that they're loving, that it's much more loving to have a clear bedtime routine and even put up a boundary to prevent the back and forth that is so much more detrimental to families than setting a clear limit. So they got, they get it in their hearts and minds, but moment they have to be prepared that the child is going to pour it on. I My favorite story is, the two, the, the two attorney parents whose kid, when the parent put up a gate, started screaming, it's illegal to ignore your child. Right. And by the way, this was a home visit. So I was literally sitting with them downstairs, like talking them off the ledge. They're like, Oh my God, he thinks we're abandoning him. And I had to help them remember he needs to do this. He, this is uncomfortable for him. He wants to get back in your bed You've decided you want kids sleeping in their own rooms and that it's much better for everybody for there to be a boundary, to do an awesome bedtime routine and to have everybody get a good night's sleep. And um, he's going to pour it on. And so when I prepare them for that and help them see that in a normative light, that they're not doing something harmful to them, they are then much better able to stay the course. And all they need is one tiny victory. So 
that child eventually, like by the way, my son did when he was two and three quarters and I had to do a sleep training when my daughter was born, he fell asleep with his blankets at the base of the gate and they were mortified. And there is nothing inherently wrong with that. He fell asleep. He eventually got himself back into bed. And in the morning, they were like, great job. You did such a good job of staying. He wasn't mad at them. He didn't have an abandonment conflict. And two more nights of that, he was a champion sleeper. They were much more loving and happy. Bedtimes were awesome because they weren't walking on eggshells for the moment when they were going to have to pull the trigger and say it's bedtime and it's lights out. It was, if you compared before and after and what was more loving, like you don't have to be a psychologist to know what was healthy for that child and family. So that's, it's really managing expectations Mm -hmm. that that is key. Yeah. This is so great. I, I could go on and on with you, um, but I, I see the time. Um, just so my listeners know, like like I said, this is for younger kids. So Claire talks about tantrums and sleep issues and potty training and meal times, all the major, you know, food groups. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, all the places where we get into you know, power struggles and everything. I think it's fantastic. And like I said before, it's, it's not just for little kids. I think it's, it's great for all parents. Um, what, is there anything that you want my listeners to leave with? Um, what's like the main thing you want them to take away? Well, so one thing to your point, Pam, just now about who the book is for, the other thing I would say is, And it's true. Like I talk to many parents where we're working on these issues with their four or five-year-old, but they're like, oh, we can do this with our eight or nine-year-old too. Like the same foundational rules apply. But also I've had a lot of parents with younger children, like 12, 15, 18 months read it because it's, it, it's like anticipatory guidance. If a lot of times you can avoid all, it's like a preventative book if you read it early enough. And so when your child starts to protest, right, and starts to have meltdowns and try to draw you into power struggles, you now see it through a more developmentally appropriate lens, mm. which can head off yeah. all of these entrenched dynamics that are at play by the time parents come to see me. So I actually am really eager to reach parents with much younger children because mm-hmm. of all the pain and suffering it can prevent. So I yeah. just want to sort of put that out there too. No, that's a great point. Yeah. So any last words of advice for us moms? You know, I would say that like in addition to the mindsets that you will see in the book that are played out through all of these cases, really at the end of the day, it's about managing your expectations. Often the frustration comes from this gap between your expectation and your child's real ability to cope with all these things, especially in early childhood. And the other thing I would say that I learned um, when I look back is that what your child really needs from you is to be present 
and to be their rock. It's not to be their fixer. It's to let them know that they're not alone and that you can handle anything. And you can do that with your child when you let go of having to have a brilliant solution to all the things that they are going to struggle with. It's getting comfortable with saying things like, I'm so glad you asked me that question. I really want to hear what's on your mind. I need a mommy moment to think about how I'm going to help you understand that. Um, Or I know that is really tough figuring out how to get along with your friends at school is hard work and I'm going to be your helper to help you think through that. And just to be the person who they can come to and feel safe to work those things through without having to jump in and have all the answers is really what your child needs. And if you set that up early on, that will be your greatest currency as your children grow, that they feel safe coming to you because you are their rock and you're not going to try to talk them out of their feelings or try and make it all better, that you have faith in their ability to do that. And you are going to be their helper and their supporter, but you're not going to fix it for them. Yeah. That's awesome. That's that'll serve them well into teenager and beyond. Yeah. So where can people find out more about you and the book? So the best way really is to go on my website. Um, my website has a page about the book and there's, you know, reviews of the book. There's lots of links to indie bookstores where you can get the book. And of course, Amazon and Barnes and Noble and other big booksellers, but a million ways to get it basically wherever books are sold. It also will list like the podcasts that I'm on and the places I'm speaking. Um, and also I have a blog where I write very regularly about these thorny issues and very much like the book, like super in the weeds and really with the goal of helping parents have that reframe, you know, to know that when their child's laughing, when being corrected, they're not a sociopath. They're just really uncomfortable with that moment of knowing they've disappointed you and they don't know what else to do. Like it's that kind of thing where like when your child's hitting you and spewing venom, they don't mean to be harmful. They just um, are triggered and have lost control of their mind and their body. So a lot of what I'm writing about is really helping parents gain those insights so that they can have the mind shift that enables them to be the loving, kind, but clear parent who can provide the limits and boundaries they need. And all of that is on my website. And my newsletter. My newsletter is another really good way for parents to stay in touch and get regular content from me. Okay, great. I'll link to all that in the show notes. And you've been very generous to agree to have a book giveaway. So um, I'm going to post the rules for that and everything. If you guys are um, listening and wanting Claire's book for free, then be sure to check out uh, my Instagram for instructions on how to enter that giveaway. And we'll send you the book right to your doorstep. All right. So Claire, thank you so much for being here. It was such a pleasure talking to you. And I love this book. Uh, I'll definitely be referring to it and reading it again and again. So thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks. It was a pleasure. Really fun to talk to you, Pam. You too. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and you're ready to feel calmer, more confident, and more at peace in your family and life, I invite you to sign up for a free consultation with me to learn about how my coaching can help you achieve the exact life you want. You'll take the concepts and tools I share in the podcast and apply them to your own life. And as your coach, I'll be there to support you every step of the way. Go to lessdramamoremama.com forward slash mini and sign up now.